A sense of civic responsibility was one of the knitting needles that worked together families, friends, and neighbors in the West Medford community. Listen along as Mrs. Carlotta Frisbee and Mrs. Isaacs speak about one of those civic responsibilities, exercising their right to vote. When I became 18, my mother said to me, she used to do this, she says, you're 18 years old now, you're old enough to register to vote. And I said, well, what do I want to vote for? My mother said, this is your country. She said, in the South, colored people are not allowed to vote, which is true, but that didn't happen until the 60s. She said, ministers, professors, doctors, teachers, and she named everybody down to the sharecropper. They are not allowed to vote. Up here in the North, we are allowed to vote. You are going to march yourself down to City Hall and register to vote, and, she, and you register Republican. So I marched down to City Hall. I'll never forget this. And she was a little woman. <laughs> so when I came back, when I came back, she says, well, she says, uh, Miss Willis, that, that, that was the sarcasm. Did you register to vote? And I said, yes, Mama. She says, now you can help run this country. I started when I first started out. I'm from the South. Mm -hmm. and, and my parents were always Republicans. I, at that time, I didn't know there was one part from another. But I remember that in talking, uh, uh, they were Republicans. They always voted Republican. So naturally, when I, we had to uh, sign up before we graduated from college down there. We had to sign up. So I signed up, and I signed up as a Republican. But when I got back, when I came, <laughs> I did. I I guess I did vote for Republican when I first got in there, but. I saw I became a Democrat with with uh, Roosevelt, and I've been a Democrat ever since. But you know something? My husband was a Republican. He <laughs> never changed. And when we'd go up here to vote, they say, "Here come the mixed house." <laughs> Hi, my name is Gail Thomas. Today, I am going to read a book to you as part of West Memphis Community Center's Juneteenth celebration. Before we begin, let's talk about Juneteenth. A long time ago, the country that we live in was the home of many Native American tribes until several hundred years ago when people from Europe came here. At that time, there were no roads or buildings or farms or houses as we see today. The Europeans wanted to build roads and farms and grocery stores and houses and grow cotton and other crops. And they needed a lot of good, strong, smart workers. So they went to Africa to get the strongest, smartest workers they could find. But they didn't want to pay them. And so they kidnapped them and brought them here. They forced them to work on the farms and buildings. And all that work without paying them was really unfair and they wouldn't let them leave when they wanted to go home. And that was really unfair too. Many of them worked very hard to escape and some of them were able to, though not everybody could. 
and there were people who were willing to help them. There were white people who didn't think slavery was right and joined with them to work against slavery. And eventually they worked together to end slavery. And the day the last of those who were enslaved became free was on June 19th, more than 200 years ago, which is now called Juneteenth. It's a day to celebrate freedom. Even today, a lot of unfair things continue to happen, and Juneteenth is a day to pause and celebrate all of those who overcame and continue to overcome unfairness in the world. So, Judge Adaluka. Hello, I'm Udbul Kashmara. I graduated the same year as Tonya in Medford High School, and I'm a student at Bunker Hill Community College and a new member of the West Medford Community Center. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. My name is Tajane Holloway, and I am um, going to Medford High right now. Nice. These are the leaders who set up this entire format to the meeting, and I want to say thank you. There's also someone here who we haven't heard from yet, Dr. Kiara, although I shouldn't be calling her doctor. She told me about that. I'm just speaking things into existence. Dr. Kiara Singleton, the executive director of the Royal House and Slave Quarters. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, um, Tony B, for inviting me. Um, thank you all for um, having me here. I'm really excited to dialogue with you. Um, I'm also very flattered that you call me doctor. You know, it gives me a little bit more motivation to actually finish my degree, um, but I'm not quite there. Almost there, but not quite. Um, but I appreciate the sentiment. Thank you, Kiara. Uh, uh, and talking to you, I, I really respect where you're coming from. Um, and I'm not going to babble on too much because this is about Juneteenth and this is about the connections of the house. I'll start off with the first question, but the young people are going to jump in with theirs as well. So I wanted to say, I, I looked at your mission. All of us actually did, Kiara. And, you know, the title, Royal House and Slave Quarters, it's a complicated title. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we wondered was, in what way is freedom connected to the preservation of the Royal House and Slave Quarters? That's a very good question. Um, and um, I think for me, when we think um, about freedom, we have to think about what it means to actually preserve Black history. Um, and for me, that is a freedom project, right? So we know so little about enslaved people. We don't know um, as much as we should, given uh, the, how long enslavement um, occurred in this country, right? But that's purposeful, right? Um, different artifacts have been destroyed, records have been destroyed, right? Things have been lost and forgotten. And it's not, you know, by accident, some of it is a willful forgetting, right? That mm. these histories were not as preserved 
deserve as, you know, say Abraham Lincoln or even Isaac Royal Jr., right? Because um, when we think about it on the most basic level, Black people in their history have often been thought of as, you know, kind of a, an aside, right? The their history, art history is not as important um, as other people, right? And so therefore it hasn't been preserved in the way that it should. And so for me, I think the fact that we have this museum and we have other museums that are dedicated to not only the preservation, but also um, commemorating and memorializing Black life. And when we talk about that, we have to include, you know, enslavement. Um, and it's important to know um, about how people lived, how they survived, how they resisted, right? And also the violence that they faced on a day-to-day day -day basis. Um, and so for me, I think that freedom is very much so in the act of making making this history not only visible, but accessible. Um, and if it's not accessible, then we have another conversation about who is this history for, right? Um, and so for me, my, my project and thinking about um, being um, a historian in training, right, is all about how do we tell these stories that we're often told we don't have enough information to talk about, right? We don't, we don't know, you know, how many people were here or we don't have exact names. And I say the goal should be, well, let's flip it. So how do we tell that history with the very few documents and artifacts? How it's our responsibility um, to still do that work. And so for me, that's what the Royal House and Slave Quarters is doing, right? They're doing that work with very little information, but still saying that even if we have one document, five documents, you know, 10 artifacts, it's still important um, to highlight. And it's a shame someone can walk by that um, space and not know what it is and just think of it as a very beautiful home. Well, there are conflicting views on that, which is great because uh, that's going to come up today. I'm gonna transfer the question now over to Taj. Taj has a question for you, and thank you for being so clear, Kiara, uh, about how freedom connects um, so to Juneteenth. Go ahead, Taj. You guys can hear me good? Yes. All right, just making sure. Um, my question is, how does the current mission and work at Royal House and Slave Quarters help to diminish discrimination? It's a very good question. Um, and so I think um, the way that I want to start um, with that is to think about what does it mean when you walk into kind of a museum space, right? Um, for me, I don't think museums are neutral spaces. Uh, their job is to tell, you know, a story. Um, and sometimes, uh, that story is told in certain ways. Um, for us, we don't want anyone to walk through the museum and think about um, the racism that, that happened in the past as something of the past, right? And so a part of our goal and mission is to connect the past to our current moment so that we can also have a way to think about the future, right? So for me, the most basic way that I think I can get at that is like, you know, it's not enough to say that people were enslaved if we do not acknowledge 
um, the oppression and racism that Black people deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in this country, right? And so the two are very connected. And so when we talk about enslavement, we have to talk about the legacy of that enslavement. So when we just look around, we can say, well, let's think about it. Let's think about the wage gap and how that um, actually plays out in Black communities. Let's think about the lack of educational access, right? We can be in one suburb and go right over to another town that's predominantly Black and see that kids do not have the same educational opportunities. And that has a history in, um, you know, redlining, that has a history in, um, you know, all of these practices that have kept um, Black communities down, right? Um, when we think about mass incarceration, we have to talk about enslavement, right? So there's a direct lineage, right? We know that right after um, emancipation, uh, white people enacted Black codes and convict lease camps to continuously still Black labor, right? So now when we get to mass incarceration, incarceration, we can say like there's an entire lineage, right? So that slavery didn't happen in this moment. It wasn't contained, but there's the, you know, as a scholar that I love, Sadia Hartman says they're afterlives. And how do those afterlives impact us today? And so for me, it's really hard um, to not think about our mission as a part of that conversation, right? If you go to our museum and then feel as though you have no connection to what Black people deal with today, then we've also failed, right? Um, but also maybe, you know, people didn't, you didn't pay attention and so as much during the tour. And so I think um, it's about creating that balance and encouraging people to not just think about the past, but ask how that past impacts um, Black communities today. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I have another question. Yeah. Um, why would you, as a Black woman, take the position of ED in a place that has a slave quarter? Are you the first? That's a very, very good question. You know, I've been thinking about that question since Tony B um, sent it over to me. And um, if I can, I want to put it back on you. It, who would you rather? be in the position as the executive director um, of the museum? Ooh. Nice. That's a flip, Tosh. That <laughs> was not prepared. Um, do you mind repeating that? Yeah, well, the question is, who would you rather be in, you know, the position? And you don't actually have to answer the question, because I think for me, um, it's important that when we think about um, preserving our history, we ask, you know, who's doing that work? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as... I am the ED, but I'm also a PhD candidate, and I, you know, I'm trained in Black history. I've been, you know, I've been studying slavery since I was an undergrad, and so a part of it is about getting hired for the job because of my expertise, right? But it's beyond that, right? It's I deeply love Black people, and I deeply care about our history, and I want to make sure that that history is told and preserved in the best way possible and with as, and with as much care as possible. And so the reason why I took the job was because it seemed it was an opportunity for me 
to not only, you know, flex my credentials, right, as a historian, but also as someone who is deeply committed to a freedom project of Black people. And a part of that is understanding our history and preserving that history. And, you know, making it so that when I tell people, you know, I like that question because it's like, why would you want to work at a place that has slave quarters or talks about slavery? It's not, you know, we shouldn't be ashamed of that history, right? We can find power in that history. Um, by knowing our history, we can think about our future, right? And we can actually make connections to our present. Um, and so for me, uh, it was a no brainer to take the position. Um, but I really respect that, that question. Um, and I think, um, it's a very good question because it's a very hard question, but one that I think is very much so rooted and um, if we don't keep our own history, who will, you know? There's a, in, in New York City, in Harlem, there's a Schomburg Center, um, and it's one of the first repositories for, you know, Black life and culture. They have one of the largest archives of um, Black history. And that's really important that we have spaces like that, right? That we, we have spaces like that, and we have museums like, you know, the Royal House and Slave Quarters and the Smithsonian's African-American, you know, History Museum or the Museum of African-American American history here, right? Like, if we're gonna, you know, tell our histories, then we got to do it the right way. Thank you. And thank you also for bringing up those other places, uh, name dropping, so to speak, uh, because I just came from New York in, in January, and what a wonderful place to Schomburg Library. Yeah. Please go check out the Schomburg. Thank you, Taj. Thank you, Taj, for the question, and I appreciate how you flipped and flexed on us, Kiara. No, no flexing. <laughs> Flex, please. Arta Luca, would you please take the next couple of questions? So my question is, in what way is the world, um, in what way is celebrating and recognizing black history tie, uh, celebrating and recognizing Juneteenth tied to the meaning of the Royal Auslift Quarter and Yeah. Okay. Great question. Um, I think for me, when we talk about um, Juneteenth, it's important to talk about both the celebration and the struggle, right? So Juneteenth comes out of um, a moment in which, you know, um, in Texas, the last, you know, group of enslaved people were told that, you know, okay, like, you're emancipated, right? But really, the Emancipation Proclamation occurred, you know, years earlier. And so I think um, what's beautiful about Juneteenth is that 
in a way that it highlights freedom, it also highlights struggle, and it highlights the ways in which people um, actively tried to keep Black Americans um, entrapped, right? And so I always think about um, Juneteenth as a way to also do service work. I grew up you know, Juneteenth was almost always about a celebration, but always in conjunction with like, you know, service work as well. And um, for me, when it comes to the, the Royal House and um, slave quarters, um, Belinda Sutton, who is a woman who was um, enslaved by the Royals, uh, when Isaac Royal Jr. passed away in his will, he gave her the option to either remain enslaved or to secure her freedom. And which one do you think she chose? She chose her freedom. And for me, I think Juneteenth and the Royal Houses, when thinking about that struggle, we highlight the ways in which um, Black people have been continuously fighting for their freedom in all different types of ways, right? And then we simultaneously talk about that, but also the ways in which, you know, white Americans, right, were, and white citizens were trying to prevent that freedom. So it's as much about the celebration as it is about the struggle. And being able to highlight that history is really important. And at the Royal House, I think, I love being like, why would Belinda ever decide to remain enslaved? Wouldn't make sense, right? Um, but again, the, the fact that, you know, he put that in his will as though there wasn't, you know, an an option that she would remain enslaved. It's kind of a willful denial of how often Black people were always trying to gain their freedom in both small ways and revolutionary ways, right? So in small ways, slowing down the work clock while they were working, you know, um, stealing food, um, running away, um, getting married, even though we know that that, you know, wasn't recognized, you know, and then you have, you know, all of these different ways, both small and little, and they all play into kind of freedom dreams that Black people have always had. And so, yeah, I think there's a connection there. Um, and one that I like to think about with Belinda and the choice between freedom and slavery. That's not really a choice. Everyone's gonna choose to be free because that is your natural state to be free. Slavery was not logical, it's not rational. And it wasn't, you know, it was something that was crafted um, specifically and expertly, right? It wasn't, it wasn't natural. People didn't want to be enslaved. So the idea that he gave her a choice is preposterous to me, so. Well, thank you for uh, giving us a really clear view of the connection of Juneteenth along with the work. Yes, that is a preposterous question that you would ask a human. Yeah. These were humans. Araluca, she has another question. Please, Araluca. Go ahead with your question. And I'll okay, my other question is, does the Royal House and Slave Quarter pursue the legacy of fighting racism anyway? Um, good question. Um, so I think that question, um, for me, um, is a really important one because, you know, and also thinking about 
I'm going to connect it also to the Juneteenth question as well, is that what's interesting is that right now we are, you know, going to celebrate um, Juneteenth um, while there is uh, two pandemics happening, right? Uh, COVID-19 and then also um, police brutality, right? And so, you know, Black people are having to negotiate um, a virus that is killing them disproportionately, right? Because of racism. And then on top of it, still fighting, um, you know, in the streets, risking their their lives, right? Because of the police violence that's rendered on them all the time in their communities, right? And so you, you people have to choose, you know, is like COVID or, you know, stand up against police violence, right? And I think that what's fascinating to me about that is where does the role of a museum come in here, right? And I think the role of the museum, if if we're committed to a project of, you know, Black history and liberation, then we have to be committed to, you know, Black freedom struggles. And that right now is happening, right, in the streets every single day. And so I think a part of our job is to kind of highlight the in solidarity with, you know, protesters that we can't say that we care about this history and then not say anything about what's happening right now. And so one of the things that we did is we put out a statement um, and we're gonna have a series of conversations over you know, the next few months thinking about um, the long history of police violence and how the, you know, this violence is also rooted in a legacy of slavery, right? Slave patrols, police, thinking about, you know, the formation of institutions and how, you know, police in many ways were, you know, deployed to protect property, white people's property. Um, so when we think about the connection to, you know, Black people, I mean, it becomes a you know, very clear because if you're deployed to protect property in many respects, where does that leave, you know, your relationship to black communities, right? Um, and so uh, these, are, these are some of the ways that we can show up and talk about racism. Um, these are some of the ways that we can also make it clear that our project is also in alignment with um, a project of liberation. Um, but also I think it's interesting to think about the fact that um, just right now we haven't, I think we can all take for granted, many of us on this call can take for granted that we grew up with like a black history month and we grew up um, with, you know, museums, you know, dedicated to black people, but that wasn't always the case, you know? And so a part of that, a part of this work is making sure that this continues, you know, this, um, preserving our history continues so that when people look back to, you know, this moment, they can put it in a long history of freedom struggles and, you know, movements that have occurred for free, uh, for Black freedom and liberation. Thank you. I also do want to say that I've been paying attention to your, uh, your Facebook feed. And in terms of battling racism, so to speak, just the stories that you tell uh, about the history of racism of, of the Royal House and, and other institutions, it's been very interesting just to be informed. Yeah. Actually, knowledge uh, battles racism in some ways, too. So thank you for your work.
Yeah, I want to just give a quick shout out to uh, Grace Law, who um, is over at the Royal House and Slave Quarters, who does a lot of that work on the Facebook. So nice. Thank you. Continue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Otto Luca. We're going to continue hearing from young people. Antonia has a few questions for you. You may have asked it already. And Antonia, if you think of something new, boom. Okay. Um, yeah, so I actually did um, think of something new while you were talking earlier. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of times we don't have like a full grasp of our history or like a full knowledge of a lot of it because of many different factors. One, of course, being that it's been like deliberately hidden from us. And when you said that, it made me think of my experience in high school and how this kind of all relates together, um, especially with the Royal House being in Medford and like Medford's history. Um, so like for me and a lot of my other black peers in high school, um, especially now that I'm at Howard, I'm able to recognize like the complete difference between the history, my history classes that I was taught in high school um, in Medford and now. Um, so it's kind of just making me wonder how it's all tying together and like what place the Royal House will take in Medford specifically, um, because Medford, of course, is a very white, affluent suburb. Um, and yeah, so just wondering about like how it will combat all the different types of like racism and white supremacy and specifically in like the town itself and like the role that it will take in the city. That's a really good question. And I think um, one of the ways that um, we can do that is that um, uh, there are two ways. So when you go to the Royal House and Slave Quarters, um, you notice that there's a street that's named after, you know, Isaac Royal. Um, after, you know, it's called Royal Street. And then you also, next to it, there's Royal Park, right? And so one of the things that we've talked about doing is thinking about getting those names changed, right? Like, what does it mean to, you know, have these names there, um, you know, have this name that's rooted in, you know, oppression. And so I think that that's one way to kind of change the conversation in Medford, right? People may, you know, walk down that street and hang out in that park all the time and not realize um, the connection to enslavement there. Um, and I think that that's a problem. And how does that make, you know, Black kids, Black people feel safe to, you know, live in a town that is memorializing um, a slave owner, right? And so it's one, it's about making that, you know, history very uh, visible and saying, yeah, see this. But then the other part is how do we work to change it? And so that's an, um, a project that um, I'm really interested in helping with is being able to, um, you know, join the voices that have already started a conversation about changing that and saying like, by keeping it where, you know, white supremacy is like literally in effect right there. Um, okay, and then my second question was gonna be, about the relations between the like protests that are happening right now and the police violence um, and Juneteenth. You already did speak a lot about this, um, but yeah, I've just, I've noticed in the past, like past years um, when Juneteenth has come around, there's just um, a lot of sentiment that on Juneteenth slavery, you know, completely ended and like done <laughs> on that day and everything. 
Um, but like, I'm a firm believer that it has com completely uh, stayed with us, just changed face and changed forms. And I think we're like totally seeing that right now with um, like starting with George Floyd's death and then the eruption of all of these protests. So I just think it's a very interesting like juxtaposition of the two at the same time, the Juneteenth celebration and then just like that racism is so much in everyone's face right now. It's It's been in our face forever. Like we see it every day, but it's in like the white people's faces now. So yeah, I just think it's um, very interesting and it must be like, I don't know the adjective, but like very significant to you to be taking this position at this time. Um, so you already talked a little bit about the role of a museum and all of this, but just if you have like any other reflections about all of this. Um, uh, I think, you know, in many ways, it's showing us that there's still a lot of work to be done. And this work, many Black people locally, nationally, globally have always been saying that, right? Um, every few years, we're, you know, we're back in the same place. And I think what's happening and what this moment is showing is that, you know, it's not enough to say that, you know, you, you care about, um, it's not enough to say that you, you're, you're not, you know, you care um, about, you know, freedom, liberation, black people, and then completely ignore, you know, what's happening in black communities across the country, right? And so I think this moment is forcing everyone to reckon with how embedded, you know, white supremacy is in so many facets of American life, right? And I think people, black people choosing to literally put their bodies on the line in a pandemic to fight, you know, police brutality, which, you know, many doctors are saying is a public health crisis as well, right? Like, it, it goes to show you can't ignore it, right? Because it doesn't, for some people, I think it's illogical. Like, why would you be out there protesting? And for many Black people, it's like, because we can't not be, you know? And so I think that these protests are causing people to really reckon with what they call home, what they call a democracy, right? And, you know, maybe they're listening a little bit more to what Black people have been saying literally for generations and generations. But what's important, I think, to note is that, you know, protests, um, Black protests have always moved and shifted a conversation about freedom, right? We've always led the charge. So the idea that anyone, you know, freed Black people doesn't make any sense. We were always fighting for freedom, right? During civil rights, always fighting for freedom. Putting pressure on politicians to not only recognize our humanity, but also adopt changes, right? And so right now we just see another manifestation of that and just connecting it to these long histories of freedom struggles. And I think, What's important about taking a role during this is that I also can't ignore, you know, what's happening in my position. Um, I'm here, I'm at a museum that highlights the life of, you know, the legacy of enslavement. And it's important for me um, to connect it to what's happening today because it doesn't impact me in, you know, an abstract way. It impacts me in a real lived way. My little brother, you know, 
live, you know, five minutes away from um, the target um, in Minneapolis where a lot of the protests happen and, you know, eight minutes away from the Walgreens that was, you know, burned down. Like these are real, you know, you know, like really Im impacted by it. And I think what it shows is that a lot of black Americans are really impacted by police violence and, you know, everyone's tired. So. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate your questions uh, about the current moment, Antonia, and how you weave that in. Perfect. We really needed uh, that. You know, I did ask in our chat room, are there any questions? And we seem to have one from Divya. And I do want to say happy Juneteenth, everyone. Happy Freedom Day to us all. And Let's stay in the struggle. Thank you, Ataluka, Antonia. Thank you, Taj. You have an awesome day. Thank and you. we are in your court. Thank you. You all have a great day, too. And again, it was an honor to have such amazing questions. Um, I hope I did them justice. So, Thank you so much. Bye. Everyone, be safe in the pandemic. Be safe. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It is said that one of the most important architects of the abolitionist movement was not actually a person or a single galvanizing speech but rather a stark engraving of the bowels of a slave ship, which started to appear in broadsides in early newspapers around 1789. This black and white diagram, printed first in Great Britain and then replicated all over the world, gave powerful credence to the dark evil of the Middle Passage and illustrated the callous and inhumane brutality of the slave enterprise as no other depiction had yet been able to do. Viewed from above, this schematic plan shows a cargo hold of a British freight ship packed with hundreds of enslaved Africans, represented by tiny, uniform, darkly shaded figures, and so hints at the brutality and barbarity they were made to suffer during the transatlantic voyage from Africa to the New World slave markets. The opponents of the trade of African chattel seized upon the visualization as a rallying cry and a call to action. More and different versions of the depiction were printed and shared in the succeeding years as the mechanics of a European anti-slavery movement were engineered. The machinery would soon find its way to American shores and be further cultivated as a growing abolitionist movement here. I wrote this piece as a corollary to that humble engraving, which I shared in my fifth published volume of poetry, Brown Skin in the Brave New World, a poet's anthem. It seems appropriate to share as we reflect on all that this Juneteenth celebration has come to represent. Slave ship soliloquy. You don't really even want to look. You hoped you'd never encounter this book. 
It's as if you truly believe that if you don't see, it could not possibly ever be. This foxed and faded scrap of weathered parchment, this tragic artifact of negritude, betrays your moral turpitude, gives you deep angst and attitude. Just look at the ink on this engraving. Regard the lives you've been enslaving. Regard the YouTube video clip. Regard the hold of the slaver's ship. A Gideon brig or rugged bark, a cargo of chattel confined to this ark. My people made captive so very often in the same footprint as a beggar's coffin. And the manacle's bite will never soften. A calculated transatlantic trade. The human cargo fuels the fortunes made. Lisbon, Bordeaux, Seville, Amsterdam, and Liverpool. Europe's ports of scorn for chattel commerce newly born. Snatched like diamonds culled from motherland mines, sold by rival tribes in lush and tropic climes. Uida, Jacob, Porto Novo, Agüe, Grand and Little Popo, Lagos, Bagadri, lands from which the traffic begins its sad sojourn, lands in which the tragic curse is sadly born. Brazil and the Indies see us first. Colonizing agents quench their greedy thirst. Rum, molasses, sugar, profits burst. Triangular merchants do their ghoulish worst. A new American nation needed labor too, to do the sweaty work that white men couldn't do. Captive markets reared their ugly heads. Southern cities saw enslavement grow its threads. Charlestown, Atlanta, Lexington, Richmond, Natchez. New Orleans, Memphis, and Nashville squeezed between. Twelve million bodies transported by the scores. Two million never reached the New World shores. Cast to the depths of the icy sea's floors. The belly of the beast with foreign sails. Great whites feast on black entrails. Many embrace this watery grave. A better voyage for them to brave. Five hundred souls or more. Each trip a stain you can't ignore. Dead chained to the living, consigned to the care of the unforgiving. Half alive chained to the nearly dead, blood that flowed like a white man's red. Rank and decaying, the skin that congealed, this is the horror that belly revealed. The filth embedded in wooden planks, diseases rife with foul, morbid tanks. Acrid dousing of salt water to gash and crusted flesh, Jewels of the crown caught in the slaver's mesh. Revolt might rear up in a brief attack. Cat and nine tails rise to beat the Negroes back. Death swab daily of blood and piss and bile. Negroes bruised and beaten all the while. Made to dance like happy monkeys for the pleasures of red-faced flunkies. The most com comely of their girls, never to wear French lace and pearls. Violated and victimized turgid white members. And, tra and trembling black thighs by slaver and sailor alike. Black bodies stacked like sticks of gum, not oil barrels or cases of rum, but treated worse than lowly scum, never an inkling of what they'd soon become. Ten million souls laid end to end, to what distant shore might they extend? Two months of perilous high seas travel, splintery beds like lying on gravel, Never assured things wouldn't unravel, not yet outlawed by a judge's oak gavel. This is the legacy my people must define. 
You won't look at your forebears' grim design. Though the evidence comes with a sickening flood, still some claim my people came from mud. Iconic image lifted abolition's cry. The best among you now would not deny. Packed like sardines in these wooden tins, ghastly body counts, some see the awful sins. They feel the weight of human suffering. They won't yet yield to the whitewashed buffering. Freedom's call is steadily toughening. This land your fathers saw and boldly claimed, the native people sharing soon defamed, built into a nation on the bondsman's chain. Those chattel bonds become commercial gains. In black and brown, you've hoarded gold and green. Perhaps before you banked, you should have seen. So regard this antique diagram, if you will. And please don't give those looks that kill. For once, just swallow history's bitter pill. This next piece I want to share with you is hopefully a little bit more celebratory in tone. It's really about how we got from there to here, and it's called Juneteenth Journey. Did Texas say, not here, not we, when emancipation set us free? Did they buck the trend like a longhorn steer and try to keep their slaves in fear? When the soldiers came to spread the orders, did the Lone Star State defend its borders? Did the slavers draw their coats and Henry's to press their rights as Texas gentry? Did they say, the war may be over for you, but we're still gray and you're still blue? That man Lincoln don't speak for us, so Yankees get, or we might cuss. Did they say to their hopeful blacks, you Negroes will never cross those tracks. We'll never treat you equally. Only in name will you be free. Did they bar the doors and douse the lights? Did lynch mobs form on warm southern nights? Did they holler about their precious state's rights? Did they gird their loins and prepare for new fights? When the 19th dawned in the old southwest, were those owners ready for their slaves to be blessed? Were they ready to unlock shackles and cages? Would they ever pay black men white men wages? In this new day of manumission, could they show any grace or any contrition? Could they finally admit that Father Time was ready to wash off slavery's grime? As the soldiers regarded their red flushed faces, were they ready to end their former disgraces? Or would they simply nod and smile, then deal with free Negroes, Texas style? Would they show just how the West would want was won with the tightened noose and the triggered gun? Would they shout defiance into the ranks of the humans, Union Army's advancing flanks? What bloody story would black men tell when white men refused to heed the bell? Would the, this legacy form a violent chapter for history to record thereafter? Or would some with cooler heads prevail and jubilant colors get out of jail? The answers written down for us to study this and then discuss the news was brought to Texas towns as Union soldiers made their rounds. The news was that the war was done. The Northern troops had finally won, their victory certain to assure, an end to all what slaves endure. It was not simple, then as now. 
Race remains a heavy plow, yet we still must commemorate America's final slaver's gate. The end of that confederacy is a bloody tale of supremacy in the war we thought we'd never see to set the Southland's bondsmen free, to keep their brothers fought against their kin, to keep their hold on Negro skin. The country took up violent arms to rid the land of slavery's charms. Now the last shall be the first, as chattel lives have broke the curse. Texas chains may not abide, though hooded clansmen now may ride. So take good care, my brown-skinned boys, neither sorrows may outweigh their joys. June 19th may loose the chains, but freedom comes with greater pains. Soon Jim Crow will rule the roost and give rednecks another boost, denying blacks our daily bread from backs to the plow, still wet codifying privilege and then making colored slaves again. Texas gangs will terrorize with hoods that hide their demon eyes. Black men hung from poplar trees to show the land still has disease. 150 years has passed since Texas blacks cried free at last. And yet the curse of race still finds a way to poison hearts and minds. Guard your lives and take good care. History's hate is everywhere. Brown-skinned boys and girls must learn that crosses in the dark still burn. This is the vigil you must keep. Every shut-eye can't be sleep. Please be wary and don't, be, don't relax. Heed the story and learn the facts. The truth recall, recalls both celebration and unpaid debts by this great nation. Juneteenth calls for drums and dance for good soul food and games of chance. Gather round, strike up the band as freedom rings throughout the land. Hug your neighbor and shake a hand as freedom rings across the land. Juneteenth signals freedom's light, a final end to that dark night. Celebrate community, gather with friends in unity. Hug your neighbor and shake a hand as freedom rings across the land. So put your troubles down and let them wine. Beautiful you and beautiful me too. Beautiful you, beautiful you and beautiful me too. Beautiful you, beautiful you and beautiful me too. Beautiful you, beautiful you.
Thank you. All right. That was stuff we did a long, long time ago. And since I had all these people, they've been doing reissues of our records and putting other issues of the same records that we did and a few other ones that we did. But we had a whole album of them songs and that stuff we were doing in that era. And it just so happens that I have someone and they're going to be putting out the album of all the songs that we did back in that era. But we kept on going on and doing other things to the point that we had, you know, our rappers and other people come together and make records with us. And I'm going to have someone come up and do a little something with us. Actually, I'm going to have two people come up. I'm going to have Elliot, who's on the record, playing his harp. And we're going to do a song called Government Cheese. Now, if you want to know what government cheese is about, I'm sure everyone's got an idea. Who's the big rat with all the cheese? You know what I mean? Leave us with crumbs. But uh, we have that that's coming out on our new style of music. Are you all ready to come up and do this or what? What's up? Yeah, what's up? We're going to have a, a, a five-minute break, I guess, and then we'll be ready for government cheese. What? Okay. Well, I don't know if we can do this whole song in five minutes. Yeah. You want to take a break now? And... No. Just go? You sure?